You're listening to the Co-Creator Network. When you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. Good afternoon. Welcome to Why Shamanism Now, a practical path to authenticity with your host, Christina Pratt. Director of the Last Mask Center for Shamanic Healing. She's talking about how shamanic skills can bring us to physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual well-being, especially when nothing else can. Now, here's your host, Christina Pratt. Welcome, everyone, to Why Shamanism Now. This is your host, Christina Pratt, and I'd like to begin here today by calling the spirits. So I call out to all of those who are good and true and beautiful in our ancestral lines, those who lived well, those who died well, those who met their initiations in life in a good way and came through those initiations to be truly the men and women they were born to be. So I call out to these ancestors, yours and mine, to be with us, to help us, the living, to meet the challenges that face us in our lives, to embrace the initiatory experiences that come our way, and to open to the possibility of the people we are called to be in our time. So I call out to these ancestors to be with us, to help us, to help the living, to do what we are meant to do so that we can create the world that those who are coming need to come into. And now that the ancestors gather around us, let us reach down from our hearts to our bellies and our bellies through our legs into the earth, into that most essential ancestor without whom we would all be floating lost in space. So we give thanks to the earth below for this day, for life, for the wonder of life and the miracle of life. We give thanks for the beauty and the mystery in life, and in particular those aspects of life we do not yet understand. For the gift in them remains um, available to us to unfold, to unwrap, and to discover. So we give thanks to the earth for the wonder of her dreaming that brought life as we know it to this planet. We reach down to the earth and draw the energy of the earth up and bring into our lives all of the wisdom of manifestation. How to be here in form in a good way for all living things. We draw up the energy of groundedness, of connection, of rootedness, of place, of home, hearth, and belonging. We call in the energy of connection and interconnection and ultimately the whole oneness of all things, that way in which we can feel in those moments, hopefully in this day, that great web of life in which we are a part. And may we know our place in that web so that we can come into right relationship with ourselves, right relationship with others, right relationship with our environment and right relationship with the spirit world. And so we give thanks to the earth for all of the teachings that could help us to do that. If we simply learn to reach, to connect, to hear, to listen, and to ask the earth for that help. So we give gratitude for all of this possibility in our time here on this planet. And we come up from the belly to the heart and the heart to the mind and we send the energy of the earth with our own energy up all the way to the highest power of the universe, all the way through all the layers of the sky. And by whatever name you know that power, I ask you to connect with it, to call it down, to bring it into yourself, bring it into your day, bring it into these proceedings. And in this way, we draw in the energy of blessing. We draw in the energy of generosity, 
of benevolence and of the protection that we need to do what we have come here to do. So we call the energy of the sky down from above into our body. We let the energies of the earth and sky dance and mix and mingle within ourselves. We bring in that great energy of the Tao into our own bodies. And with a nice deep breath into that energy, we open up and ask that the spirit of the heart be awakened now with us. And we call out to the spirit of the heart to be with us here today and to open up as the great crucible of change that it is. And we ask the heart to be that unique place that can draw the passions of the belly in and draw down the clear crystal clarity of the mind into the heart where they can mix and merge and be able to finally come together in such a way that gives birth to that third and unknown thing. The reason that you are here, your soul's true purpose. And may you find the courage in your heart here today to give energy to bringing your unique genius into the world. So we give thanks for the spirits gathered round, the heart in the center, the earth, the sky, the ancestors. And I give thanks to those of you uh, who have moved in your spirit to help us to support the show and to keep the show live and on the air and free and available to those who have access to the, through the internet um, to the shows in the archives or live. And I'd like to give a special thanks this week to Allison, to Stefan, to Lydia and Nakia and Janelle and all of the listeners who have donated financially to the show. If this show is meaningful to you in any way, even if it agitates or disturbs It moves you in the heart, and when the heart is moved, it is the profound act at the center of all shamanism to allow yourself to be moved by the heart. So let yourself be moved by the heart to do something to help the show to grow. And if you'd like to support the show financially, even small amounts are greatly appreciated. You can go to whyshamanismnow.com, click on the support button, and offer any amount, large or small. It is all greatly appreciated, and you can offer it in any currency that you choose. So I give thanks to all of you for doing that and thanks to those of you who donate to make the show available for those who simply cannot, who are using the show as a way to help bring their lives together. Give thanks to those of you that are sharing with me how the show is working in your lives, how you're using it, how you're talking about it in your journey circles and bringing it into your practice and your way of living. And thanks to those of you who have sent questions. and ideas and a way to keep the show vital and alive and timely for you all. So thank you all for helping me to keep the show um, alive and well. So I'd like to give thanks now for our guest today, Dr. Seth Farber. Seth, thank you for being with us today. For inviting me. And so today we're going to talk about your new book, The Spiritual Gift of Madness. And for those of you uh, who don't know, um, well, A, the book is available from Inner Traditions. And um, it's actually a really beautiful book. Um, But before I go there, I just want to let people know that Dr. Farber is a writer, a social critic, a dissident psychologist, a visionary, and an activist um, in many facets of human rights, um, green and anti-war movements, the support of animal rights. And he joins us this week to discuss his new book, um, The Spiritual Gift of Madness, The Failure of Psychiatry and the Rise of Mad Pride. Um, Dr. Farber is also the co-founder of the Network Against Coercive Psychiatry and is an editor of the pioneering scholarly review, The Journal of the Mind and Behavior. Um, he also has other books, one called Lunching with Lunatics, which is one of the most brilliant titles ever 
put on the face of a book. <laughs> um, Ed Madness, Heresy, and the Rumor of Angels, the Revolt Against the Mental Health System. Um, if you would like to contact Dr. Farber, you can email him at seth at 17279 at AOL.com or seth h as in Harry. Well, actually, I don't know what your middle name is. Anyway, Seth H. Farber, F-A-R-B-E-R dot com. Um, and I'd also like to give thanks today to the Society of Shamanic Practitioners for they are sponsoring this um, show, this interview show. And you can find the Society of Shamanic Practitioners at shamansociety.org. We are live. And if you would like to call in with a topic about today's show, you can call in at 512-772-1938. You can Skype from the co-creatornetwork.com site or email me at christina at lastmasscenter.org and I would be happy to read your question on the show. So for those of you who are wondering, we are talking today uh, with um, Seth about his book because shamanic healers are often called on by people in extreme states who want to understand their experience in a different way than the standard um, psychiatric or allopathic route. And I am... I often have clients who are shocked to begin to tell me their story and to find that I'm not shocked Um, and that there's a whole different way of understanding their experience. And so this is not uncommon in our practice as shamanic practitioners and yet most of us practice alone and are very much outside of any larger system and sometimes challenged in being able to really show up and assist people um, in this extreme state or in these many different extreme states. So I've invited Seth to join us today on the show to help us to understand um, what the culture calls madness in a different way or what our culture calls mental illness in a different way. So if you would be so kind, Seth, if you could kind of guide us through um, the big steps in the history that got us here because I think a lot of people don't actually really understand where we are today. You're talking about in terms of the uh, mental health system and the yes. treatment? Oh. Um, so how did we get here, and where are we? Well, it, well, I mean, you could say the, there was a change in the mental health system. It became institutionalized, formalized, in the late 1700s, and that's really when they uh, were putting more more people in, putting people in the, inst- the psychiatric institutions grew up, um, and uh, at that point uh, they started defining madness, which was seen in, in a variety of different terms as mental illness. And in the 19th century, there was a, a battle between the psychiatrists and lay people over who would control the institutions. And psychiatrists won that battle. They got control over the institutions, which at the time for them was a, a source of, of lucrative, a lucrative source of income. And uh, they fought the battle and in in Congress, and one of the ways they they won the battle was they put out volumes and volumes defining uh, what uh, so-called mental illness was. Um, it looks uh, 
the names were completely different and the um, diagnosis were, were completely different than, than they are today. The only thing similar was that they uh, were saying that they were mental illness. But uh, the, the fact that there were so many volumes put out defining mental illness convinced uh, um, uh, the, uh, the Congress and the government that uh, these were authorities, and, and they were given control over the, the mental hospitals so that the lay people... And that was the, that was the um, 19th century, and the common uh, cures for so-called mental illness in those days were uh, immersing people in, in ice, um, putting them in, in uh, they had contraptions, uh, round chairs that would, would go, uh, go round and, and round. Um, they, they would shackle them for hours at a time. And actually, I, I think the, 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 the more uh, horrific cures that people think about from one flew over the cuckoo's nest were, 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 were more, more 20th century innovations. And that's when they start, the cures became uh, for so-called mental illness, putting people in, uh, uh, inducing uh, uh, electroshock. Uh, but before electroshock, there was um, met, uh, there were various different kinds of insulin, uh, uh, various kinds of uh, uh, things that were intended to induce coma. Oh, anyway, all of these were in people that were considered, you know, completely incomprehensible to the psychiatrist and to uh, other many other human beings. They were so strange in their idea. And, and today, um, you'd more likely to they wouldn't see many. Probably not that much different than someone you might uh, see here talking to themselves in the. In the street, but in, in those days, uh, they were uh, terribly frightening to the psychiatrists. Not necessarily because they were violent; uh, the vast majority of them were not, but because they were so different, and the tolerance for difference was less in those days uh, than it is today. Which is not to say that the that the treatment is so much much better. It's just. It, it has different exigencies and it, uh, different di- dynamics uh, behind it. So what was the next move then in in getting us to where we are today from there? Yeah, uh, I would say the, the, probably just to, to skip a lot, skip the whole uh, period of, of uh, lobotomies, which people probably are aware of. They were like... 100,000 lobotomies performed in America was uh, when they, what, what the, the establishment, the psychiatrist likes to call deinstitutionalization, uh, when, which was considered great progress. There's a whole mythology around it, but they took people out of the, the mental hospitals and they supposedly put them in, in, commun- in the community, but really they didn't put them in the community. They moved them from uh, a, a mental institution to halfway houses and, and other kinds of institutions, but uh, not quite in the community. And um, really the, the major change that, that people are, are uh, uh, 
aware of today uh, took place in the, in the late 70s when the um, the whole field the psychiatric field became merged with the drug the drug uh, the drug companies the pharmaceutical industry um, in the late 70s and that that transformed the whole field for and um, for one thing in spite of the fact that um, uh, that uh, the psychiatrists like to say we've made enormous uh, progress in understanding and and treating uh, mentally ill, so-called mentally ill. There, there are there were um, to take uh, the diagnosis of uh, bipolar, which used to be called manic uh, depression. Depression. There were like uh, forty-five thousand in in nineteen. 19- 55, and there are 6 million today. So you, you can do that with many different diagnoses, and you find uh, the, the numbers have gone from uh, several thousand to, to millions. And with that, millions have gone millions that are on psychiatric drugs. So, of course, it's, it's yeah. So in your book, you also point out... Um some amazing statements, well, amazing to me at least, of of psychiatrists in the field during the time of this transition speaking out very strongly against this shift to becoming essentially an arm of the pharmaceutical companies. Well, there were a couple. <laughs> there, there, there was Peter Bragan is, and there was Lauren Mosher. Is that who you're thinking of? Yeah, and and just share with people the kinds of things that they said because I'm not sure you know the layperson is really aware that there were people oh, in the profession standing up and saying we need to not do this. Oh well, I mean, but before the shift in 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 the uh, the drug companies. By the way, uh, it's the thesis of my book, uh, I should say, I mean, I mean, just to bring it in line with your program. My of this book and and my and my uh, my first book too that uh, most or many of the people who are uh, de- deemed uh, schizophrenic are having the same kind of experiences that shamans had. In fact, in 1988, I gave a, a lecture to uh, it was my first time that I uh, gave a lecture to a. A, a big conference of large conference of mental patients, and um, I, I said yesterday, shaman is today's chronic schizophrenic, the kind of person who, in a, a previous era, would would have been considered a, a shaman, a medicine man, a medicine man, a spiritual healer, would have been inaugurated into uh, the role, the vocation of shaman, medicine man. Spiritual healers is today inducted into a the role of chronic mental patient. Well, there were people aware of this, as you say, uh, as early as 1967, 61. Thomas Zaz, um, are you are you familiar with him? By the way, only from your book. Oh, he was the first. I think really the first prominent. I mean, there were people in the 19th century, but they're they're kind of obscure now, and I don't think they they have had a, a lasting impact. There's no one of of Zaz's depth and and profundity in terms of of debunking 
making a critique of the whole idea of, of mental illness, and his first book was called The Myth of Mental Illness. And, you know, he regarded uh, mental illness as, a, as a, an outmoded, uh, uh, misleading metaphor. Well, one thing, he, uh, uh, and that it didn't exist, that people were, were fooled into thinking that problems of life were um, problems of living, were actually mental illnesses. Um, and uh, there's a, there's a, so he initiated what we call a, often is called a paradigm shift. I think as momentous as the shift from Newtonian physics into, uh, you know, Einsteinian physics and, and quantum mechanics or into, you know, the uh, idea that the Earth, uh, the, the, the Earth um, goes around, the, the, the Sun goes around to the Earth, to the Earth goes around the, the Sun. I mean, this was a, although it did not have, it caused a, a lot of fear and controversy, it did not change the practices in the mental health profession, like Einsteinian physics revolutionized physics. And... Why do you think so? Why do you think it didn't? I mean, all of these MDs swear to do no harm. So, why do you think it didn't change people's practice? Well, in in the nineteen sixties, the the field was pretty much dominated by uh, Freudians and uh, the mental. The although in the uh, state mental they were letting them out of state mental hospitals. The psychiatric drugs were given out, but not you know not to half the population. People didn't go in and uh, you know from saying this for the benefit of the younger people, people didn't go in and, and get uh, Prozac. It's only a small percent of the population those that were considered schizophrenic who were who were put on uh, drugs. Uh, but basically, it's because at that time. It's it's a different reason than it is today. At that time, it's just because people don't like to uh, they they become uh, ideologically and philosophically committed to their one way of looking at the world. They were trained in it. Uh, they were trained to be a Freudian, which in, in those days was like a training to be a a, a, a priest or something, because you you went to you underwent this trip. This training yourself, where you were supposed to undergo psychoanalysis and go back in the past and uh, sit on a couch and and free associate and and make all kinds of relationship to every problem you you have in your life to everything that happened uh, to you in your relationship with your mother when you were uh, two or three years old. Anyway, that 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 fortunately that kind of fanciful, crazy ideas went out, but um, they people were used to their their way of doing things, and they were committed to it. It was like a religion. And when I was in in graduate school, I first started in the in the seventies. People believed in Freudianism, the Freudian, as they would believe devoutly, as they would be a devout Catholic. Probably not as many devout Catholics now, but um, they were devout uh, Freudians, and so they were resistant to uh, the. Uh, then they 
you know, they made their living. Uh, but, but part of it is also the psychiatrists were very committed to the idea that they were doctors and that they were involved in a medical profession. And uh, and here Zaz was coming around and saying, no, 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 you're, this is not medical at all. You're, you're fakes, you're phonies, you're pretending to be doctors. You may have a medical degree, but you're not practicing medicine. And, and these people that are, are, are troubled are, are going to you at best for, for good conversation. Zaz was the first. Then Lang, R.D. Lang, initiated a, a, uh, another step, equally as revolutionary, in 1967 with the book The uh, Politics of Experience. That probably caused even more furor than, uh, than, than, than Zaz's work, The Myth of Mental Illness, because uh, uh, Lang was the first to say that those people are, that we uh, call schizophrenics are undergoing a shamanic type of experiences, are having, are, are, are doing, are exploring their inner, the inner world of their psyche. And um, he said that they're, uh, they're wiser than, um, than, than the uh, psychiatrists. Uh, here's a, 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 um, a, a provocative quote, the kind of thing that, that Lang frequently said, I'll just give you one short one that would drive psychiatrists crazy at the time. But this was the 60s, so that his book became a bestseller, uh, The Politics of Experience. And he was a, you know, a psychiatrist. This was, you know, not someone on the fringes of the profession, but right in the heart of the profession, both Lang and, and Zaz. And uh, Lang said, normal men have killed perhaps 100 million of their fellow normal human beings in the last 50 years. Probably uh, we can add uh, 10 or 20 more million now. This was in 67. The condition of alienation, of being asleep, of being of conscious, of being out of one's mind is the condition of normal men. Society highly values its normal. Anyway, normal men, it educates children to lose themselves, to become absurd, and thus to be normal. And then he said, if the human race survives, future men will look back on our enlightened epic as a veritable age of darkness. The last on us, they will see that what we call schizophrenia was one of the forms in which, often through quite ordinary people, the light began to break in the cracks in our all-too-closed minds. And he said, in the future, uh, he said, we respect the voyager, the, today we, we respect the voyager, the explorer, the climber, the spaceman. Why is it we do not respect the mad? We're often exploring the inner space and time of consciousness. Anyway, he has said a lot of these things and uh, uh, did lots of conferences and so on, and Psychiatrists were getting uh, angry, and uh, but it was a time where you know that kind of ferment was accepted, and and uh, each would want to get up to to bat and argue with with Lang when he would give conferences, and a thousand people would show up, or uh, five hundred, or, or wherever he was giving them. So that that was uh, what I consider a significant change in the. Uh, but uh, in the late 60s, it didn't seem to have, uh, once again, it didn't have an impact 
on the uh, mental health profession other than making people mad uh, on the fringes there were not within the in the public sector you, you not people weren't doing well actually I come to think of it there were there were a- experimental places that were open in the late 70s um uh, there was a place called Lang had a place in in Britain called Kingsley House, and um, that was a kind of crazy place. But people who were so-called schizophrenic would go there, and they uh, wouldn't be pushed around. They wouldn't be forced to take drugs, and many of them did get better. But it was a kind of chaotic environment. And what happened in the in the 60s was a man in the 70s, a man named Warren Mosier set up a uh, place modeled on Lang's place, but was more disciplined. It had people that were trained, and he and he had research done. He was going to demonstrate and prove that it was successful, uh, that this method of treating the so-called mentally ill would be as successful or more successful than the, um, the typical hospital, the putting uh, schizophrenics in in hospital in hospitals, and so that was a change in the '60s, and it was it was it proven to be successful. That ironically, the same time that Mosher had started, uh, and this was the question you asked before, had started. Uh, Soteria Project, it was called, uh, one of the greatest uh, experiments in in the mental, so-called mental health field, because it proved that uh, you could. It, we have it all on paper. You know, you can uh, you can Google it on online, and it'll come up on Wikipedia. And and there were there were a lot of research done to to show with control groups and rigorous uh, experiments to show that it worked. At the same time. Psychiatrists were getting together and saying in the 70s, we're in a real financial bind here. We are, we are losing money. Uh, that made it hard for probably the young person of today to see all these, this profession that is a, a wealthy, a very wealthy profession making hundreds of thousands of dollars, and the field is certainly not in trouble. And so, but uh, today... But at that time, and one of the reasons they were in trouble was uh, because ideas like Lang caught on, Lang's caught on not not so much in the public sector, but in the private sector. And you know, uh, psychiatrists who used to be making a lot of money in private practices, they didn't spend. You know, they, the psychiatrists particularly didn't spend much time in institutions. They looked down on. Mental patients, schizophrenics, they wanted to deal with what in those days was called the neurotic. So, and they wanted to have their fancy offices, but they were losing money to social workers who were doing creative things that were introduced in the 60s, not not just things by Lang, but in the spirit of, 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 the, of the kind of revolution that Lang introduced. So, you know, Gestalt therapy, there are all kinds of new things. And they sat down and they said, well, if we do not find some way to make more money, the American Psychiatric Association is going to go 
out of, we're going to go bankrupt. And then they made the fateful decision in 1978 that Peter Bregan, Dr. Peter Bregan, chronicles in his book, Toxic Psychiatry, I, I discuss it briefly in, in my book as, as well, um, they decided they were going to open the doors to the drug companies, the pharmaceutical companies. Before that, they considered it unethical. And after they made this decision, there were psychiatrists who said, wait a minute, this is not right. It's a conflict of interest for us to be taking money from the pharmaceutical companies. Um, somehow, you don't hear any of those doubts uh, expressed by uh, psychiatrists today, except by the, the you know by people like Peter Bregan, who have been pushed to the, the margins of, of the field. Um, and... Uh, that's when the field was transformed. They, they, they. Uh, five years later, they were getting you know twenty percent of their budget. That's then. Now it's probably like forty percent, twenty percent of their budget from the pharmaceutical company. Their financial problem was solved of APA, and that began the the merger. That began the the um, that was the growth in 1978 of. Uh, what uh, I call, I think, borrowing the term, I think Reagan was the first to, to use a term like this, the concept of the psychiatric pharmaceutical complex. Well, I forget, probably many people are, are too young to know that Eisenhower invented the term uh, the uh, military, and, well, I guess most people are familiar with the term military-industrial complex, Right. You think mm-hmm. most of your viewers sure. have... Sure. Yeah, okay, that's a common, common term. It was, I don't know if they, everybody knows it was invented not by, uh, a, um, not by someone against the military, but by Dwight Eisenhower. So today, uh, uh, Peter Bregan dubbed it the military, the psychiatric pharmaceutical complex. And this is the same criticisms... <laughs> That Dwight Eisenhower, President Eisenhower, made of the um, pharmaceutical psych, uh, military industrial complex could be made of the uh, the pharmaceutical company, uh, comp- the psychiatric pharmaceutical complex. Its function now is to um, generate money for the for the for the drug companies uh, at the at the cost of the at uh, the cost of the well-being of patients and of clients. Well, also, it sounds like at the cost of some people who were actually doing really good work that was actually successful in terms of giving people an opportunity to be in their experience, their extreme state experience, and have it come to a beneficial conclusion for them or beneficial outcome, I guess I would say. And that sounds like that that piece, those people who were doing that good work, it kind of got overcome by this completely um, i mean it's kind of it, oddly it's like pharmacology in the body you know the body's filled with really strong um naturally occurring hormones etc that make the body work but man you stick these pharmaceuticals in and it's like being hit by a truck yeah you know, i mean they're just it's re, you just get overwhelmed by mm-hmm. these um chemicals okay so anyway so that kind of gets us to Mostly gets us to where we are today, right? Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, they, they, there were 
particularly with people who were schizophrenics, uh, um, they were being cured uh, by places like Soteria House, Diabasis, and um, yeah, that's that's where we are today. Uh, where uh, every or half the population will soon be on I mean, who knows where it's going to stop? Because you know they they're instituting programs. They're putting children children on. You know, ten years, 50, 20 years ago, you didn't have you know three million children on uh, psychiatric drugs, and it's it's growing. So um, um, yeah, that we're we're at today where I think the 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 um, what defines who gets a drug is is whether I mean the pharmaceutical companies think it's good because um, for example uh, the, the, a famous drug was Prozac I mean there are lots of uh, and uh, and when it first came out it was hailed as a wonder drug and it made people so happy and now there have been a lot of books. Showing that that the drug doesn't do particularly, maybe slightly better with people who are very depressed, but with the vast majority of people who take it, it doesn't do any better than a than a than a than a um, uh, a placebo. Mm-hmm. Yes, thank you. And but yeah. it doesn't have the, the placebo doesn't have side effects. You don't become impotent from a placebo. I, I say that thus further you know, diminishing your quality of life. Yeah. Oh. I mean, it's something like fifty percent because they didn't. They downplayed that whole thing too, because that, that's not good. Good, you know, not good advertising copy for for Eli Lilly to you know to add, to to say, well, you know, you have a twenty percent chance of having sexual dysfunction if you take uh, Prozac, blah blah, et cetera. So okay, but, so this is the context that you write your book in, and I wanted to share this um, piece from your book. It's um. You were writing about Perry's legacy and um, that we've been talking about, and he said this, which I thought was lovely, which is, this is not a disease, illness, or psychopathology. It is a rich inner experience in a visionary state that may be turbulent and scary at times, sometimes nightmarish, sometimes sublime, yet it's all tending to move towards a goal that is favorable for a better life. And so this is my sense of what you we're talking about really today is we have this context over here of this this um state of illusion that's being cultivated on one hand but on the other hand we're we're talking about this possibility or this reality i would say as a shamanic practitioner of madness as a dangerous but exquisite gift if we can find a way to let people unwrap their gift yeah but well, there was of course the idea. Of, uh, the supposedly, I found out it's not a Chinese hexagram, but I always thought um, crisis was a Chinese hexagram for dangerous opportunity. But it sounds good anyway, and it's similar to the idea of dangerous uh, uh, madness being a gift. Uh, was was an idea of some of the mad people themselves. Who uh, were founded? That's the other part of my my book, the story of the uh, the Mad Pride movement, what was originally called the Mental Patients Liberation Movement. Yes, exactly. That's that's the theme of my book. That that these are spiritual gifts. It's only because where society is is so un well, particularly the mental health profession. I mean, of course, 
you know, they're on the fringes, or the fringe, well, less on the fringes than 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 before the '60s, but you know, you won't find it in mainstream psychiatry with people talking about shamanism and and other kinds of things. But I mean, in 1967, Julian Silverman, who is a psychologist, wrote an article called "Shamanism and Acute Schizophrenia." So yeah, that that's the kind of thing. The 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 outcome is is the exact opposite, and 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 the thing is, on the one hand, there's the possibility of of gifts that can be a benefit, like take schizophrenia and bipolar, that can be a benefit to to the people that are afflicted by these things. You know that they're not mental illnesses; they're they're crises, uh, and that out of crises can, can come growth, usually, especially if it doesn't usually work in the mental health system today. That's the greatest threat to people's health and, and well-being. Uh, when they when they have a spiritual crisis, it, it was in the sixties, even more today. But um, it yeah, it can, and so it not only can be a, a contribution to their own life. Conceivably, uh, it could, they could make a contribution to the transformation of society. I guess that's the the uh, most radical part of my book is thinking that these people who um, uh, psychiatrists have been spent the last two hundred years, you know, hitting over the head with. Uh, I mean, you know, they they basically their their most of their treatments were assaults on the brain from the. From starting in the early 20th century, um, the, it was the body they were, you know, hitting in the in 19th century. In the 20th, it was all these things that would cause con- con- brain convulsions, electroshock, and uh, lobotomies. And then, you know, the 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 neuroleptic drugs that people take, what they do is they they cause a well to use a phrase. By, uh, invented by the, the people that that were and psychiatrists that were most enthusiastic about these drugs, uh, drugs like uh, Zyprexia, Risperidol, uh, the first of that used to be Haldol and Prolixin, less often used. Uh, they caused a, a chemical lobotomy, so they too are, are an assault on the brain. Now, if you don't take a person, if you take a person who's having this kind of altered states of consciousness and don't subject him to brain, him or her to brain damage, all kinds of possibilities begin to blossom. Um, and, uh, so let's talk about that. I mean, what, what could we, let's envision a future where we created or we, 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 well, we created what people need, like what do people need to be able to, um, have this experience, these extreme states, granted often frightening extreme states, be able to become, as you said, not just a gift for the person, but how do they become people that are really the visionaries for society? Like, what, how would we need to start thinking about it differently, and what would we need to be doing so that this could happen? Yeah, that's that's what I'm hoping that w- w- will happen before before you know before the whole society is destroyed in an ecological Armageddon. Since uh, our politicians aren't doing anything about global global warming, 
Um, you know, so, because you've talked to a lot of people that have made this transition in their own lives, in their uh, own yeah. way. And what do you find is 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 um, what 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 we how we would need to begin to think about this and what we would begin to offer so people could could make this transition. Yeah, well, first of all, people should know about that. I mean, I've I've met hundreds of people now. There'd be more if they weren't the psychiatry where it was that didn't have this assembly line where they're giving them drugs that are uh, uh, interfering with the function of the brain. I've met hundreds of people. There'd be more. We know what works works now because of people like Lauren Mosher and and R. D. Lang. Um, uh, Turning them in, in, into 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 shamans, I've spoken to, to hundreds of people uh, who have uh, gotten off the the drugs. First of all, in today's world, um, they have to get off the drugs and out of the out of the mental health system. And when I wrote my first book in 1993, um, I introduced seven seven people who were all labeled schizophrenic. And they'd all gotten out of the, the the mental health system off the psychiatric drugs. Um, I think it's harder now because there's more more um, push for them to stay on. Even then, there was a push, but they they become more persistent, and the propaganda is is more per- pervasive. So how can a person who is suffering right now, because some of the people listening to the show are people that are are perhaps medicated or go on and off medication and are really trying to find another way to understand their experience. So how can people avoid becoming a chronic mental health patient? Yeah, well, the first thing is, is uh, and this is, this, it's hard for people who are, it's harder for people who have been on these drugs to take, there, okay, I mean, like there are a few organizations and there are a few psychiatrists, very few, and maybe a, a few more psychologists who who aren't pushing the drugs that I think are, are, are poisonous drugs. You know, I'm, I, I'm not saying it's poisonous to take it for a short period of time, but, you know, to put someone on Risperidol for life, I mean, the data shows it disables them. It disables them. That's why in the in the countries, the big UN United Nations study, twenty thirty years study, found that that people most likely to recover from schizophrenia were those who were not on were in countries where they where they didn't use these drugs so so often. Um, so well, I mean, it's hard to get off the drugs by themselves. So certainly, um, uh, one thing is uh, one thing that people sh- shouldn't do is is not get off the drugs. Um, I'm calling them drugs. Everyone else calls them. Everyone else they they know. I've been calling these psychiatric drugs whatever the the the, the establishment calls meds or medications for thirty years because it's, you know in my my belief they're not medications. They didn't figure out what was wrong with the person and then give them a, a, a you know for example they they discovered. A, um, they didn't. They didn't say. Well, I we we see that the schizophrenic has lower dopamine. How can we um, make more dopamine? And no. Instead, they were experimenting with monkeys, and they found they gave a, a monkey uh, the drug that that's now a neuroleptic, a Thorazine, and the monkey got quiet. Uh, um, 
and it didn't run around as much. So they said, let's let's try this on on the in the hospitals on the mental patients. And when they introduced them, they said, wow, this is working pretty good. The patients are are much quieter. You know, they were ten or twenty or thirty years later. They they were having Parkinson's disease. It's called tardive dyskinesia. But um, so the the thing is, the hardest thing is that is to not get, not to become addicted to these drugs, and to once you're on them, not to get off them abruptly. If you've been on the drugs five years, it's going to take at least six months, maybe a year, to get off the drugs. The longer you've been on them. Uh, there, you know, there are websites that that people can go to, and there are, um, you know, um, I have to put more stuff on my website. That there, uh, you know, there there are groups of there's the Icarus Project, which is a group of um, uh, of mental patients who they have actually not only a website. Uh, Sasha, that's in my book. Uh, this, uh, I interviewed the founder of the Icarus Project, and in about probably about ten places they have chap in this country they have chapters. You know they're not enough because there are people all over the country, and you know there are various different websites where they can try to. There's an alternative mental health, uh, and where uh, where they can go to some uh, practitioners who will. Say they'll help people get off at alternativementalhealth.com. Um, my website has information. My and my book is uh, my book. You know, to tell the stories of people who have done it. You know, unfortunately, this is the it's an unsolved problem now because I'm saying what needs to be done. It's you know, like that movie they say build the um, build the uh, what was it the best build it and they will court. come. Yeah. 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 Uh, that has to be done. The, the problem is um, the money to, 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 to people are forming the organizations. They're not getting money from from the government at this point. Um, and, and in fact, Lauren Mosier, who set up this very successful Soteria House, and by the way, the other place was its sister. It was set up by uh, um, the guy that you mentioned, John Weir Perry. It was called Di- Diabasis. And what you quoted was what he actually said to each patient that came there. You know, this is a an experience out of which much good could come. And um, he he was uh, both 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 Lauren Mosher, who set up Soteria House, and John Weir Perry, who set up Soteria House. They both died very disheartened because their, their their money was cut off. They spent after the a after nineteen eighty. They spent you know, 10, 20 years trying to get more money because they had the proof it worked. But the mental health system, it's like, it's like uh, Occupy Wall Street. It, it, it's the, the, the system is not interested in what works anymore. It's a tragic situation. There, it, it's a society that, that is itself dysfunctional. The system that is, is interested in what makes money. And what makes money is, is obviously... What makes the drug companies? The, the biggest drug seller is the drug that, that I think has done the most harm to people. I think Zyprexa, which has been sued many times, 
it's done such harm, and they have proof that it does harm. And, and But suing it doesn't put them out of business. No one goes to jail. It's just cost of doing business. So, yeah, this is a problem. It's, it's, but, so I, I would like to see these organizations grow bigger. I mean... There's a lot. Well, if we of had line. those millions of people that are on the pharmaceuticals now all convert, then they'd grow bigger really fast. <laughs> so, got lots yeah. of people that could join those ranks. So our uh, first thing is try to not become a chronic mental patient. Do what you can to not get on the pharmaceuticals, and then do what you can to get off. Right, but I, it's I, bigger than that, isn't it? I mean, it, there's also the experience that people in somehow needs to run its course. In a way that's held other than the way society holds things because the way society holds people in these states doesn't help, doesn't guide, doesn't contain. That's the easy part. I mean, it's like, I mean, easy because we know how to do that. Um, But, yeah, we we don't know. Uh, it's, It's the adventurous part. I mean, what would uh, one one likes to think that that it, as I say, that it, that it would have a major social impact? Because I talk about in the book, yeah, that the people who had the answers were people like Mosher and 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 Diabasis. They go, they went to a place like Di- Diabasis, and they were having hearing voices. At that stage, he was uh, uh, um, Perry was only taking people who were first or new, who hadn't been on the drugs. They were uh, new, new schizophrenics, just newly labeled. Uh, now, yeah, by the way, now they have many more bipolar, and as I said, and they have six million bipolar. A lot of those, the bipolar is actually created by the by the um, by the the. the stimulants that they give the stimulants and the SROs they give people it has that kind of effect on the drug but okay you take a person at the beginning you put them in a place where you tell them exactly what you just said what Perry said what you're undergoing is a great experience is an experience Perry said you could get you know now I, I tend to see people when they're not in that state of panic because I I didn't I did go to see people. I have been in mental hospitals many times, but now they're all drugged. But Perry said without drugs, you know, within a couple hours, just talking to the person, he could get them relaxed. And so they would go through their experience. I guess, uh, you know, you could compare it to, uh, you know, taking a, a hallucinogenic drug, but... Uh, and there, the some of the experiences were, were frightening, and and a lot of it was was obviously very ec- ecstatic. People, um, everyone I interviewed in 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 my book describes spiritual experiences, and, and uh, except for one, one person who was put on the drugs when she was uh, eight eight years, thirteen, twelve years old. Uh, because she was working to her, but any everyone, virtually everyone I, almost everyone I met who was labeled schizophrenic or, or bipolar, has had ecstatic spiritual experience. Even the people that are going around with the some preaching take the medicine will, will admit that. Um, and I talk about uh, some of those experiences in in my book. Um, 
people on the the website um, uh, the Icarus, Icarus project describe uh, many of the profound you know they've experienced God um, many of them and uh, the infinite so um, yeah they generally generally in a, in a kind of environment like diab diabasis or soteria house they will come back to a kind of normal solid state uh, within within a, a few weeks at most a few days or, or a few weeks and um, I interviewed um, a psychiatrist from my book uh, Peter Stasny and yeah he says keep them off 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 the neuroleptics if possible because it has such terrible side effects but he's not against giving them uh, you know if they're nervous uh, a clonopin or you know it's a cousin of valium or something like that uh, for anxiety you're not treating a disease but the people are do get in states of anxiety and Sometimes they get in states of sleeplessness. So those kinds of things that will help them relax, whether natural or pharmaceutical, uh, can be can be very helpful. Uh, then, um, yeah. Well, I just I had a very telling experience um, in my practice. A, a mother was very concerned. Her son, you know, coming into his thirties, was diagnosed as schizophrenic, and you know, a sudden sort of break. And, um, what was the, oh, he had, the son had a break? Yeah. And mm-hmm. as I was looking into the, you know, I don't have very much time, so I'm going to do a short version of this, but the, the shamanic diagnosis was really pretty simple, which was that in the natural challenge in our early adult life between the ego and the soul, you know, which is going to guide you for your life, in the current culture, the young man's ego had too much support and the soul had so little support in the ideas that were in this young man's head that unfortunately the ego won the battle and so the man began to fall apart. And uh-huh. that what's, you know, what's really supposed to happen, and, and ideally, if the culture was really healthy, it would be happening when people are in their teens, is you would be taken through this challenge, and that um, you would have been given the kind of stories to shape your reality so that the soul would win and mm-hmm. begin to guide us in our our journey. And that, that, to me, is one of the really important distinctions made in shamanic cultures around these these states, these extreme states, is, you know, if a person doesn't really get through their initiation and come out in that kind of adult state, they're, yeah. they're, 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 they're held well by the community as someone who has a strong connection to spirit, but mm-hmm. they're treated as a child uh-huh. forever because, yeah. you know, and, and, and so they don't interpret their own visions, in other words, because they, they don't, they haven't passed through that gateway to really understand those experiences they're having, which may well be ecstatic, but they don't understand them. I didn't realize that. I thought the people who were called all successfully completed the initiation. No, some die. And some, some just yeah. come out, actually, there is a version of crazy in shamanic cultures where it's just they just don't complete. And then they're kind of stuck in this place where they're kind of like a wide open gate. Yeah. And they can't function as an adult in the world. And, the, and so this ability, so it's, it's not just the gift, but mm-hmm. it's the ability to interpret in a way that is meaningful either for yourself individually or for the people in the 
from the shamanic perspective. And, and so it's both. It's, I always think of it as the gift and the tool. But of course, uh, an important part of it is that the shaman is the is the healed healer, and that yeah. um, I don't know, one of the someone said that it might have been uh, that they have to continue to heal in order to maintain their own uh, uh, balance and sanity. So, Seth, we're almost done here, which is unbelievable to me, but we are. Um, in this last minute, what what would you like to say about your book, which is beautiful? And let me. What last thing would you like to say about it? Well, I was just going to, I don't know about my book. At first, I was going to give a quote uh, that Martin Luther King said. He said, society will be changed by the creatively maladjusted. And in my book, I, I do talk about it. I mean, virtually, like, the great people who have made a change in, in society, spiritual change, were considered mad. And many of them, like St. Saint, Saint Paul, I you know, uh, suppose by psychiatric standards, he had a hallucination of of a dead man talking to him. I mean, you can find this throughout that uh, uh, people who were um, in other cultures having experiences today that would be schizophrenic that became the prophets who changed the whole society. I mean, obviously, St. Paul had a major impact in terms of spread. There wouldn't be Christianity today, if not for better or for worse, but it started out good uh, if it weren't for St. Paul. Well, so, Seth, thank you so much for being with us here today. Everyone, this is, has been, we've been talking with Dr. Seth Farber. His book is The Spiritual Gift of Madness, The Failure of Psychiatry and the Rise of Mad Pride. He is out there on the Internet. You can find him. And I want to thank you for being with us here today, Seth. Yeah, I'll give, should I just give my... Uh, um, SethHFarber.com is my website, and oh, should I give my phone number just in case? Two one two two one two five six zero. That's my voicemail. Two one two five six zero seven two eight eight. Thank you very much, and thank you everyone for listening. Have a great week.